Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the IQT podcast. Today on our series, The Intersection, we're going to switch things up a bit to share a discussion between two of my colleagues, Dr. Megan Anderson, our EVP of Capabilities, and Dr. Sarah Sewell, our EVP of Strategic Issues. In this segment, which was recorded at an event held back in May, you'll hear them explore innovative solutions to energy independence and over-the-horizon technologies to help shape a better world. Without further ado, let's hear from two of my colleagues smarter than me, Sarah and Megan, as they talk about, again, the intersection of national security and technology. Please enjoy the episode. Energy innovation is the longer-term imperative for both environmental and national security reasons. Alternative sources of energy, and more specifically, renewable technologies, will continue to play an increasing role in powering our partners' mission needs. To put this in context, in 2021, renewable energy accounted for more than 40% of the world's electricity, and demand is expected to continue and almost double by 2040. So the good news is, InQtel has been investing across the energy ecosystem for the past 20 years. Here's some of the technologies we are focusing on today. So first is developing a robust US-based ecosystem for battery production. Second is addressing vulnerabilities in critical minerals for energy production. And lastly, looking at public and private efforts to achieve fusion. The two areas you see here are connected, and we will need both to achieve sustainable energy innovation. So starting with batteries. Today, the battery supply chain is highly dependent on China. The majority of the raw materials required for batteries are either mined in China or mined elsewhere and sent to China. And refinement and processing of these materials before they can be used to make batteries mainly occurs in China. Well, there are some historical reasons for this, right? I mean, first of all, China chose to accept the really high environmental costs of processing these materials and creating the batteries. Second of all, China has an, an, a national strategy of trying to corner the market wherever possible on critical minerals overseas, Asia, Africa, South America. And thirdly, the Chinese government has invested heavily in the infrastructure to process and build all this stuff. So we can understand how we got there. What are the prospects for America creating its own independent battery ecosystem? Yeah, so first we can be forward leaning and look to different battery designs that use friendlier supply chains. Everyone is familiar with lithium ion batteries. They power our phones and today's electric vehicles but we have little access to those raw materials in the US. But sodium ion batteries may provide an alternative for renewable batteries, and these materials can be mined directly in the US. And secondly, we should promote a circular economy for battery production. I'm excited by the opportunities that this could bring. Most people don't think about the fact that when a battery stops working, you can open it up and extract the materials out of the battery, you can recharge these using a little bit of chemistry, and you can repackage these into new batteries. Since, since we've already paid the price to get these materials in the company when we import the batteries, let's close the loop and get more out of what we've paid for. 
Now let's step back from batteries specifically and look more broadly at the minerals used across renewable technologies. I was surprised to learn just how much more dependent on minerals a greener economy will be. Did you know an electric vehicle requires six times more minerals than a conventional car? And an onshore wind plant requires nearly 10 times the minerals of a gas-fired plant. So these minerals are used to make batteries, solar panels, wiring for the grid, turbines, magnets for motors, and much more. So if you will humor me for a minute, I'm gonna take us back to chemistry class for a second. As a general term, all of the minerals used for energy production are referred to as critical minerals. Some of these are well known. Take lithium and nickel, for example, and others less so. The rest of these critical minerals are the so-called rare earth elements. Rare earth elements get an outsized voice in this conversation. They are essential to get the magnets used in wind turbines and electric vehicle motors, but they are not actually rare. The challenge is efficiently accessing and processing them. In China, which must import so much of its energy today, has made huge efforts into dominating these supply chains, which are often in authoritarian or unstable countries. So the good news is there are efforts underway to address this for the US. There is increasing government awareness with a new executive order intended to restart domestic critical mineral mining. Well, that sounds important, Megan, but um, do we really want to be doing that in the United States and is it gonna be sufficient? I mean, typically when, when IQT is thinking about a problem, we're not thinking about just onshoring a solution, we're thinking about innovative, disrupting solutions. Yeah, you raise a great point, Sarah. I hope we can all agree that we don't want to onshore these legacy mining and processing methods that are going to damage our environment. So the U.S. needs to look to next generation technologies to access these minerals in ways that are going to be less environmentally harmful. So fortunately, there are several technology advances from other fields that can be applied to this challenge. Starting with mining, Companies can use geospatial intelligence and artificial intelligence to get smarter about where to extract these minerals. And for processing these minerals, chemistry advances are driving innovation. Companies are now looking to extract critical minerals from mine waste and easier ways to use chemistry to separate out the rare earth elements, to my earlier point. And we need to be thinking outside of the box and looking beyond terrestrial mining to deep sea mining and getting minerals out of ocean water. And even further outside of the box, we need to be looking for new materials for energy production. Domains such as synthetic biology hold great promise to create such materials. So pulling this all together, we are seeing promising innovation around renewable technologies that can help improve our energy posture in the coming years but innovation around existing technologies is not the solution for energy independence. Right, so fusion has always been out there as the holy grail, but it also seems as though we've been chasing it forever. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Sarah. Research into fusion began in the 1940s. What we are looking to do is replicate the power of the sun and capture that in a fusion reactor. So these reactors don't exist today. 
Fusion requires extreme heat and pressure over long periods of time to achieve this energy. So you have to design a reactor that is capable of withstanding those conditions. And if that's not hard enough, it must be done economically for this to become a practical reality. So needless to say, this is a daunting undertaking. But the world keeps trying because fusion holds the promise of a cleaner source of massive amounts of energy. And compared to today's nuclear fission reactors, it's a much safer option with less nuclear waste and physics that will preclude catastrophic meltdowns. So I'm talking about fusion today because real technical progress is on the horizon. The US and partners around the globe are collaborating to spend tens of billions of dollars on fusion research. And not surprisingly, China is investing heavily. More companies and investors have entered this space in recent years. I'll mention two. So first is Commonwealth Fusion. This is a US company that spun out of MIT in 2017. And it made headlines when it raised $1.8 billion in 2021. This was a huge amount that surprised some of the investment community. Their accomplishment was building a magnet that suggests they can get their reactor design to work. Another example is Helion. Founded in 2013 and based on an ARPA-E research project, the company's breakthrough is a full working reactor design, which didn't exist before. So this growing landscape will continue as new companies emerge to build on this progress and tackle different technical approaches to achieve working reactors in the 2025 to 2030 timeframe. So this is coming. Altogether, three billion went into fusion companies in 2021. And this huge capital will move this technology forward in the near term. You know, the picture you're painting, Megan, makes it sound as though fusion could be actually a reality around the corner. And the need for conversations around whether or not the private sector can make it there on its own, given the capital requirements, how to marry the private sector efforts with the national efforts and those international consortia that you were talking about, and also questions about how do we share this technology with the world if we're lucky enough to actually make it viable. So these are, these are really important questions for the US government to be talking about with its friends, allies, and their entrepreneurs as, as we think about fusion coming into focus. What other technologies does IQT see on the horizon that could help us shape a better world but will be relevant for great power competition? Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Let's take a look at some of the areas our teams are exploring. So front of mind for me is bio because biotechnology will be essential to crafting solutions to some of the biggest challenges facing humanity. Improving human health, ensuring food security, and restoring planetary health. We began ringing the alarm bell around biosecurity over six years ago. We established an investing architecture that accurately identified technologies that would be vital to managing pandemics. And we invested in a number of these capabilities, which proved important during COVID and will be helpful for future health crises. The field of biotechnology continues to progress rapidly. IQT is watching advances in foundational areas such as biological big data, engineered biology, genomics, and engineered healthcare. 
You know, all of this stems from one of the most important scientific insights of the 20th century, and that is that, and this is what our Be Next uh, practice is always reminding us, life is written in code. Biology is programmable, and we are learning how to read and write and edit the code of life. And with that comes enormous possibilities, but enormous challenges at every level. Um, and the, the impact of this revolution is going to be both challenging and, and profound. And another example you heard about just a moment ago that's going to be a game changer is quantum. Everyone hears quantum and thinks, we're going to break encryption, which is exciting, but there's opportunities that expand far beyond code breaking. Quantum computers have the potential to revolutionize computing and enable breakthroughs to problems that are currently intractable. But quantum will also redefine how we communicate and how we sense the world around us. Advances in quantum will be a marathon and not a sprint. IQT has been making investments in quantum for the past decade. Some of our recent global highlights include Universal Quantum out of the UK, Quintessence Labs out of Australia, and Sandbox here in the US. And as quantum continues its path, both intertwined with classical compute and then finding its own way, it's going to be really important that our national governments not only anticipate the impact on defense and national security, but think about what it can mean in a positive opportunistic way in the coming years. And we will continue our storied history of foresight in game-changing technology in the commercial space arena. We've unpacked high orbit, we've moved down through the layers, and we're now coming closer to Earth with V-LEO, our very low Earth orbit. It's a hard one to say. This is where satellites are actually in the Earth's atmosphere, which gives us advantages in higher resolution imaging with a faster path to enable more real-time communication. And there's no space debris, which is a challenge that is wreaking havoc across other parts of the ecosystem. We are also exploring on-orbit manufacturing with our portfolio company, Varda Space Industries, leading the charge. Some technologies, including quantum communications, will benefit significantly from the ability to manufacture components in cold, weightless space. And it's really fascinating to watch because this cislunar space between Earth and Moon is becoming its own economic ecosystem. It's not just manufacturing, it's, it's uh, satellite service companies and it's ferrying supplies. And with all of that activity comes increasing domain awareness, um, which is really important because great power competition is alive and well in that space. And moving closer to Earth, in the coming years, the depths of the oceans may become as transparent as the Earth's surface. Today, less than 10% of the ocean is mapped. Yet this is important geography. Think oil and gas, shipping supply routes, and cabling, for example. But we're at an inflection point where technology advances around lower cost maritime platforms are combining with autonomy and AI. And they're creating a viable path to map the world's oceans. InQtel's global investments across this ecosystem are giving us a unique lens. 
one of the big challenges that the United States has been facing is ubiquitous surveillance on Earth. As the oceans become transparent, as we see more clearly in them, that's going to be a big challenge for the way the United States has operated, where we've counted on opacity in the oceans for quite some time. But it's also true that learning more about ocean terrain is going to open up entirely new uses, not just deep seabed mining, but things we can't even imagine today. And with that new terrain is going to come great power activity and competition. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention the metaverse. <laughs> At a high level, the metaverse is a 3D digitized physical world where people will live, work, and play. And while everyone is talking about its potential, from a national security and an operational perspective, our customers and the nation should be thinking about the metaverse as a new attack surface, as an alternative ecosystem to exchange value and evade sanctions, as a new platform to collect and transmit data, as a new identity management challenge, and a massive opportunity for social engineering. Hmm. And so perhaps rewrite truth permanently and rewrite history? They, these are our heady issues. And the reality is that as our, our virtual world increasingly intersects with our, our human physical environment, it's going to provide new ways for improvement, but also new ways for nations to affect that very personal environment. All right. I hope this foray through technology has been eye-opening. And when you leave later today, you will think twice about the geopolitical implications at stake. IQT is here to anticipate the threats and possibilities over the horizon so that our government partners, the nation, and our allies can better innovate for the future. On behalf of IQT, thank you. That concludes today's episode. Thanks so much to Megan and Sarah for shedding light on some of the big topics in tech that will shape environmental conditions and national security in the years to come. You can learn more about this topic and others on the IQT blog at www.iqt.org blog. Thanks for tuning in today. We'll talk to you next time on The Intersection.